Luke chapter 2, verse 21 to 40. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, and given the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, was fin- were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it was written in the law of the Lord, Every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according what was stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him, he was customary under the law. What was customary under the law? Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace, as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. When Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and will be a sign that they will and to be a sign that will that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of a tribe from Asher. She was well along her years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was a widow of eighty-four years. She did not leave the temple, serving God day and night with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had completed everything according to the Lord, to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. at the temple. Now, this is a fascinating part of Scripture and it, it's, it's actually quite rich uh, with depth and meaning. And so my prayer is that as we look at this passage today, we'll see how Jesus uh, is really confronting to mankind even while he was still a baby. You know, it's often said that Jesus was a great teacher or he was some wonderful prophet. But the reality is, as many have said, that either Jesus was a madman or he really was the Son of God. The sorts of things that he said and did uh, is really confronting. We don't actually have the option of just looking at him as some sort of nice, good, moral teacher. 
And even here, right from his birth, at his dedication at the temple, um, uh, right through to his death and resurrection, Jesus confronts us and actually causes us uh, to have to make a choice. And if there's one thing that we need to learn today, it's that Jesus doesn't leave us unchanged. He does actually confront us and, and force us to, uh, to wrestle with his identity. He's not just the sweet baby saviour, you know, that we find on our, on our Christmas cards. He's not just a gentle man who also happens to float on water. Um, he's not like we see in the pictures, you know, with this beautiful halo and perfect hair. He's actually a confronting saviour. And he's confronting for three different reasons. Uh, and we're going to be looking at these three different reasons why Jesus confronts us we, uh, where we are today. And the first of these is that Jesus confronts us because he lived a perfect life. In a sense, he has uh, before God the legal right to confront us because he perfectly obeyed the law. You see, Jesus kept the law of God completely, even here, just after his birth. Uh, verse 22, uh, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, it reads in the NIV. So what are these purification rites? If you uh, went right back to Leviticus 12, you will find that the Israelites were instructed to offer a burnt offering and a sin offering in thanks and preparation for the life of their child. The burnt offering was to be consumed by fire completely. Uh, in a sense, it expresses the, the soul of the person in worship as, um, as a way of praising God simply for who he was. And the sin offering was offered to atone for the sin of the parents of the child. And you see, uh, this is where I think the, the Catholic Church gets it quite wrong. They, um, they see Mary as, as uh, sort of this perfect figure. But here, Mary, who bore the Christ child, who had great favor in the Lord, even she was not perfect. She too was sinful. And that's why they had to offer this sin offering. And so Mary and Joseph come to Jerusalem to present Jesus to the Lord. As it's written in the law, every firstborn is to be consecrated to the Lord. And this causes us a little bit of an issue. Why did they bring him to Jerusalem? Because nowhere in the Mosaic law does it actually say that a child is supposed to be consecrated at the temple in Jerusalem. So there's no Mosaic law requirement for Jesus to be presented in this fashion. And so why... Did they, do, did they do that? If you now skip forward a few thousand years to Nehemiah, you see when the Israelites came back out of exile and they, they recommitted themselves to the Lord, they obligated themselves and said, we will offer, in essence, our firstborn to God in Jerusalem. And it shows us that Jesus doesn't just fulfill the biblical laws as God had revealed to Moses when Israel was constituted as a nation, he, he, he fulfills all the laws that came after that for the sake of saving his people. And this passage also teaches us that um, Jesus came as a, uh, into a really poor family. So that they are to offer a sacrifice in keeping with the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or some pigeons. Now what happens is that Mary and Joseph come and uh, they bring pigeons for their sin offering. That's the cheapest kind of uh, animal you could offer to do that. God had made this special provision for the poor. In Leviticus 12 we read, 
But if she, that is the mother, cannot afford a lamb, then she'll, she'll take two doves or two young pigeons. So they come as this poor family to present this offering. And we see that Jesus, who, who is the Lord, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, is humbled here into a family, into poverty. So not only is he born in a stable, he's born to a poor family that don't have even the means to offer, I guess, a proper sacrifice. They have to, uh, they have to offer these pigeons because they don't have uh, the money for otherwise. But notice, friends, that our circumstances don't actually excuse us from our obligation to God. Not even the parents of the Messiah himself uh, didn't do the right thing. English works in there somewhere. You, you know what I'm trying to say. We have obligations before God and our circumstances uh, don't excuse us from, from fulfilling those. Then in verse 39 we read, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord. So Luke here is, is making uh, a point. He, he really is taking great pains to show us that everything had been done. Everything had been done so that Jesus fulfills the law completely. He has kind of this legal right standing before God and because of that he confronts us. Already here we see that Jesus starts fulfilling every last pen stroke of the law, every last requirement, every requirement that wasn't even a requirement in the Mosaic law. He fulfilled all of that so that he has the right to confront us. And not, not in the sense of a school child, you know, who says, no, 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 I did the right thing, you did the wrong thing. Uh, but even if he did, we would have to cop it on the chin because he's right. He obeys the law perfectly. But he doesn't obey the law perfectly so that he could throw it in our faces. There's a, there's a bigger issue at stake here. There's this thing called the law of primogeniture, which, which is uh, in, in kind of Hebrew uh, and Jewish culture, there's this law that um, the firstborn inherits the authority over the things that the, that the father had. So if you read verse 23, uh, it should, like literally translated, it says that every male who first opens the womb, so every firstborn male, the Lord claims the firstborn as his own because they, according to Jewish custom, inherited the headship of the family from the father. Now the firstborn, in a sense on earth of God, is Adam, right? So Adam used to have authority and ownership over the earth. When God placed him there, he gave him headship over the earth. In a sense, he had authority, spiritual authority over earth. God had given it to him. And yet he squandered that on a piece of fruit. And so Adam loses the ability to do God's will on behalf of the human race. And that is what we call the fall. Now we've, we've looked at that before. He's, he's taken this fruit, he rejects God's authority over him. And because of that, every human being born since inherits their sin from Adam. And now God the Father says, I will send you a new Adam, one who gets his authority from me. He will have true headship over the earth and he's not going to squander his authority on a piece of fruit because Jesus is the firstborn who inherits 
God's authority to judge and to do God's will. And so as we come into Christ, we become part of that family who has been set free by Jesus' legal headship over us. And that's why Jesus has to completely obey the law. So that he could wrestle from Satan, who had taken that authority from Adam, uh, wrestle that back from him. And in fact, if you read the book of Luke in chapter 4, so only just after this, that's exactly what happens. Jesus goes into the desert. He has this 40-day standoff with Satan who tempts him like he did Adam, and Jesus comes out on top. And so for Jesus to be able to fulfill this law of primogeniture and take the authority over the earth back from Satan, he has to obey God's word completely. And so he actually does. And all throughout his life, he lives this perfect, sinless life. And when he dies on the cross, he dies as one who is completely innocent, one who has completely fulfilled the law. One who is free from his own personal sin as someone who fulfilled the law, but also one who is free from inherited sin uh, from Adam's line. See, Jesus had to be born of the Holy Spirit so that he would not have that same taint of sin that Adam had. So he kept the law, he's free from his own personal sin, he's born by the Holy Spirit uh, and therefore is free from Adam's sin and therefore he has the authority to be king over the whole world. And when he then dies, he dies completely pure. And that's Jesus, and then there's us. And when we compare ourselves to the standard that Christ has set, we see just how far short we have fallen from what God requires. You see, the reality is that we have all broken God's law personally. Even though we've inherited this sin stain from Adam, even if we didn't do that, we all personally have sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory that God requires. We've all stepped away from the perfect lives demanded of God's children. And even the smallest deviation from God's revealed will damns us forever. And because this is an uncomfortable truth, we tend to make a kind of distinction between the big sins and the little sins, don't we? We tend to think of that as long as on average we do well, then we're okay. We tend to think that as long as our good actions outweigh our bad actions, then we're fine. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we go through this sort of internal uh, sin level measurement that says, am I good enough? Have I obeyed enough of God's law, moral law? And when we do that internal measurement, the line always seems to be just below where we, where we are, doesn't it? We, we always seem to think that we're somehow okay. Yes, I've done a few bad things here, but look at all the good things we've done. But the problem is that kind of thinking does not hold up in court, even a human court. So if I were to go and steal a car and the police catch me uh, and they take me to the judge and they say, here is this guy, here's all the evidence, he's clearly guilty, he stole the car, I'm not going to be able to stand in front of the judge and say, 
Yes, I stole the car, but did you see how much I looked after the poor? Or did you see how wonderful I was in all these other ways? No, the guilt is clear because of the act that happened. It doesn't work even in a human court, so why should it work in a divine court? Friends, the reality is that compared to Christ, we just don't stack up, do we? You don't and I don't, but Jesus did. He came to fulfill the law because we don't, we can't. And that's the first reason why Jesus is so confronting. Because before us we have someone who's lived this perfect life and, and as we see him we realize just how far we fall short. His own life becomes kind of like a mirror of the Ten Commandments and says, is this who you really are? Do you live like Christ? Do you live like he did? You should, you must, otherwise you can't be in God's presence. He kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and anyone who sins is out of his presence. And because we can't live that perfect life, we must bow in humble gratitude to the perfect life Jesus lived for us. He confronts us because he's perfect. And then he covers our imperfection with his perfect sacrifice. It's amazing, isn't it? And it's confronting. And I don't know where you are with Jesus this morning. Maybe this is an, a, a truth that you've always believed. This is something that you've come to, uh, to really trust in and, and you trust that Christ has covered you uh, and all of your wrongdoing, all of your sin, and you now stand before God with, with boldness because you are clean by His sacrifice. If that's you, then this should be an encouragement to praise God, to humbly come on your knees and say, thank you, Lord, for washing me clean. But maybe you haven't accepted that and you stand condemned in your own sin. This is an opportunity to come to Christ and ask, please, Lord, cover me too with your perfect life. Having been confronted by your sin when you see Christ, you can ask for Him to cover you too. That's the first thing we need to see. Jesus is confronting because He perfectly obeys the law. The second thing we see is that Jesus confronts us because He makes us wait until God's perfect timing. Now I just want to digress for a moment here and think about Simeon and Anna for a second in, in verses 25 to 38. Of Israel. In, 30, uh, in verse 38 we see that Anna is speaking to everyone who was looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. They, they both had, had been waiting uh, for God to come and, and fix the problem. We, there was... In this time, the Jewish people had largely fallen away from true devotion to Yahweh. It was really only a small group of true believers, ones who were trusting that God would act. And friends, more and more, this is where we are today as, as believers. You know, uh, the Christian church in Australia, if you kind of take all the denominations put together, our census data has shown a, a, really a picture of very steady decline. Uh, in 1911... Uh, when one of the first censuses was taken, 96% of the people said they were Christian. 
A hundred years later, that's dropped to 61%. That's in 2011. This drop has greatly accelerated, uh, you know, with the church's disagreement, particularly on matters of things like homosexuality uh, and so on. And when we had the, um, uh, the, the marriage equality debate, whatever you want to call that, uh, it was the time when the church was seen as, as the worst. At the time, only 30% of the people in this country thought that it was good for the world to have the church. Only 30%, a third of people thought that the church was a good thing in the world. And if we follow the trend along, the next census will show that there's an even greater drop in in numbers of people who claim to be believers. It seems as if more and more the church is under pressure from the world. And we as Christians face these challenges to our faith that would have seemed unheard of Uh, 20, even 10 years ago. And in the midst of these kinds of challenges, we might cry out to the Lord, come soon, come quickly. We are waiting for the consolation of Christians, for you to come and finally lay claim, become Lord over the whole world. But this prayer has been the prayer of the church for ages. There have been many who who have cried this prayer for the Lord to come quickly. This longing was there even in this day uh, when Jesus was presented to the temple. There is this longing to make things right. That's what Simeon and Anna wanted to see too. They were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, for the consolation of Israel. They were waiting for the Messiah to come because they, the people of God, uh, felt few and far between. And maybe as we walk through the shops or walk through the street, we can feel a bit few and far between. Yes, there were Jewish people everywhere, but there weren't many people who were truly people of God. These were the two that were waiting for Israel to be consoled. They were waiting with this kind of prayerful expectancy that God would come and fix the problem. They were waiting to be comforted. They were waiting to be consoled and encouraged They were waiting for Israel to become who they were meant to be, this great people of God who shows the world uh, how good it is to be God's people. They were waiting, in a sense, for God to come and fulfill the promises that He had made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all those years ago. They were waiting for the Messiah. And maybe it feels like that for us too where we wait for the Messiah to come and make the things we long for right again. Maybe you feel this longing that things are not as they should be. You know, all of us instinctively know that life, this world, is not as it should be. I think if we were to pause and stop and just examine ourselves and examine society outside us, we would have to admit that life is not as it should be. There's a, um, a Portuguese poet, not that I'm into Portuguese poetry, mind you, but um, uh, a guy named Fernando Pe- uh, Pezoa. Um, I just found this. I have no idea who he is, but he wrote this. He says, The feelings that hurt the most, the emotions that sting the most, are those that are absurd. It is a longing for the impossible things because, precisely because they are impossible. 
It's a kind of nostalgia for what never was and a desire for what could have been, for a regret over not being someone else and for a dissatisfaction with the world's existence. And then he says this, all these half-tones of the soul's consciousness creating us a painful landscape, an eternal sunset of what we are. What he's reflecting there is that deep down we all know that things are not the way they should be. We have this innate understanding that the world is broken and it should be different, but it's not. And we long for it to be fixed. These half-tones of the soul's consciousness, we are waiting for them to be made full. We want satisfaction with the world's existence and yet we do not have it. And so we seek it, we seek to fill this longing with all kinds of other things, don't we? We fill it with, uh, with distractions and with pleasures and with other kinds of idols that we think will fill that gap in our hearts that really only Christ can fill. We want the solution, we want the remedy, we want anything because we have this longing in our hearts. And the reality is that the only person, the only place where our longings, our deepest, innermost longings will be met is in the person of Jesus Christ. Paiosa says we long for the impossible things precisely because they are impossible. But friends, that isn't impossible. It's not impossible for us to be made right with God because of our rebellion against Him. It's not impossible for us to be able to stand and say, it is well with my soul. It is not impossible for us to come and see God face to face uh, as, we, uh, as we see Him when, we, when He comes again or when we go uh, to heaven. It is not impossible because of Jesus. That's what His death and resurrection means for us. That's how we are perfected. That's how we are being called by name. He is the solution, the remedy, the completion of that longing we have in our hearts to be made right with God. Him taking on our sin means that we bear it no more. When He takes on our rebellion, it means we rebel no more. And when He takes on God's wrath, it means we can stand in front of God Almighty with full confidence and say, it is well with my soul. We don't have to come like the priests did in, in um, like the high priest did in ancient Israel with fear and trembling entering the most holy place. In a sense, we can waltz in there because Jesus has already paid the price. He has taken God's wrath on us already. He confronts us because he makes us wait until God's time is complete. That's the second thing we need to see. And the third is that He confronts us because He makes us choose. So we've seen how Jesus is confronting because He's lived this perfect life. We've seen how He is confronting because He, he makes us wait for that consolation to come. And now we see that Jesus is confronting because He forces us to choose. Verse 34, this is from the NIV. He says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to, be, uh, to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. 
and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know what kind of blessing this really is. Imagine a priest coming to you. you you've come, you've, you've got your baby, I'm about to baptize the baby or whatever, and we say, let me bless this child and, and then he will be a sword that will be spoken against. He's going to be a sword. It's going to pierce your soul. With a friend like that, I mean, really, who needs enemies? Now, to be fair, I think we have to understand that our text is a little bit ambiguous. Okay, uh, And so what I think is going on here is that the, the blessing happens kind of between the words them and and. So, uh, so he blesses the child and then he speaks to Mary and says, actually, this is what the child is going to be like. So we don't actually know what the blessing it, itself was. This is more of a, a prophecy. Um, but what he says to Mary is quite unnerving, isn't it? He's going to cause the rise and fall of many in Israel. He's going to be a sign that will be opposed. And he's going to be someone who exposes the thoughts and hearts of many. Now most scholars agree that this refers back to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14 and 15. Um, and here we read, when you read that passage, it says uh, that Jesus will be, or the Messiah will be a sanctuary and a stumbling stone. Many will stumble it, on it and, be, and fall and be broken. And I guess that's the reality of the gospel, isn't it? It is good news, but it's offensive good news. What Je- Jesus is good news, but he's going to offend, he's going to divide. He can either be a sanctuary or he's going to be a rock over which you stumble and fall and break. And these are the only two options. Christ will either be your sanctuary or He's going to be a deadly rock that will dash you to pieces. Jesus demands a response. We cannot remain neutral to Him. There is no fence sitting when it comes to Christ. You'll either be saved by Him or you'll be destroyed by not accepting Him. These are the only options the Bible gives us. Repent and believe or face the consequences. Again, friends, I don't know where you stand with Jesus. I don't know where you stand, whether He is your sanctuary or whether He is a stumbling block for you. Do you hide under the wings of His protection or do you fall over Him as an obstacle? Only you can say that. But consider this. If you fall over Jesus, if He causes you to stumble, ask yourself, why is that? Is it because you believe that He never really existed? Most recent data of of Christians in Australia show that most young people, about uh, just slightly more than 50% from memory, believe that Jesus was not a real historical figure. They don't think that He actually existed, despite the fact that Every serious historian, uh, secular or Christian, will agree that Jesus definitely existed. I mean, he's written about even in records from non-Christian people. Uh, Tacitus, the Roman emperor, is one who mentions Jesus by name in his writings, and he hated Christians. And yet, because the world has become so confused, say half of our young people today believe that Jesus is just a mythical figure. Shocking. Is it because you think that maybe even if he existed, he was never crucified? 
Again, look at the writings from non-Christian writers. You will find that they write specifically about Jesus' crucifixion. But I would argue that it's probably something deeper in our lives that cause us to stumble over Him. Maybe it is that if I trust in Jesus, then, well, then I would have to give control of my life to Him. I would have to lay aside some of the things that I've held on to for so long because He will become Lord of my life. Is it that I stumble over Him because I think that I'm good enough to save myself, even though I know deep down I really can't? Is it that we stumble over Him because we refuse to acknowledge those deep longings that, uh, that our Portuguese poet friend talks about by just ignoring these longings in the soul? Is it that we stumble over Him because we continually try and fill these longings with things that really can't help? Is it that we stumble over Him because we think, well, maybe I'm just unsavable. Maybe I've gone so far wrong and I know it that I don't believe that Jesus actually would die for someone like me? Or is it that we stumble because we're afraid that we'll need to change if we accept this Jesus thing? I don't know where you sit, but Jesus forces you to choose. You cannot remain on the fence. It is simply not an option. You must either run to Him as your sanctuary or reject Him and fall and be crushed and broken by Him. He is a confronting Saviour, but He's not merciless. He's a confronting Saviour, but He is full of grace for all that we have done in the past. He's confronting because He has the right to be legally. But maybe He is most confronting because He will accept us wherever we're at and then ask us to go and sin no more. Friends, we must choose. Either Jesus will be your sanctuary or He will be your stumbling block. Choose rightly. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray that through your Holy Spirit right now that you will pierce our hearts, that you will expose our thoughts and that you will open us to come and truly trust in you. Whether we've trusted in you uh, for many, many years and yet we still have uh, sections of our lives where we won't submit to you or whether perhaps this is the first time we come wanting to know you more deeply as the Lord of our life. Lord, we pray that you will, through your Holy Spirit, change us in this moment. Take your word and plant it deep within us and change us to be the people you created us to be. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.